I, Frank William Abagnale, am known as the world's greatest imposter, and no wonder. In the course of my nefarious career, I've palmed myself off as a doctor, lawyer, college instructor, stockbroker, and airline pilot. To become an airline pilot, I merely bought a plastic ID card for $5, affixed an airline logo from a model plane hobby kit, and in no time at all, was co-pilot for a major airline. As a bogus lawyer, I actually worked on a state attorney general's staff. For six years, I also cashed over $2,500,000 in bad checks in 26 countries. Ultimately, I was sentenced to 72 years in prison. I served one year in France, one year in Sweden. I then served four years in a federal prison in this country. Paroled, I now devote my life to the prevention and detection of crime. Signed, Frank William Abagnale. That was Joe Garagiola introducing the world in 1977 to a con man, Frank Abagnale Jr. And that's the date where we begin this story. This episode of Scams and Cons will be very different. It will focus on a single person and a single case. The clips you'll listen to will be longer, and you'll hear a lot of my opinions. If the name Frank Abagnale isn't familiar to you, the fictional movie Catch Me If You Can is loosely based on the tales he's told, the ones you just heard about on To Tell the Truth. Soon after that appearance, he got the first of his many shots on The Johnny Carson Show. This is in 1978. I have not met uh, my next guest. I'm looking forward to talking with him. His name is uh, Frank uh, Abagnale, and he had a short but illustrious career as a con man. Some of the things he did, he impersonated a co-pilot for a major airline. He faked it as a lawyer on the state attorney general staff. Passed as a pediatrician in a Georgia hospital. Was a phony college professor. And cashed 17,000 bad checks amounting to $2.5 million. Abagnale continued to tell and expand his stories. Stories he said were youthful indiscretions. That ended at age 21. But now he was actively peddling and expanding upon those tales at age 29. From there came a book, a movie, and a Broadway show. After his appearance on Carson, Abagnale says Carson encouraged him to write the book. And he got on the phone, he said to me, you know, you need to write a book about your life. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm 26, 27 years old. I'm kind of young to write about my life. He said, I thought maybe I'd do that when I was maybe 70 years old. Nope. You need to do that now. He said, I have a friend. Uh, she's uh, a literary agent. She's the best in the business, but she's getting ready to retire. She's in her 60s, and she has a ranch out in Arizona, and she's getting ready to leave L.A., but if I give her a call, I think she'd represent you. And I said, well, okay. And her name was Margell Delora. I got a call from her. She represented me. She's the one that got the book deal. She's the one made the movie deal. Steven Spielberg knew all of this story. So when he finished the movie, on the day he finished it, he had a disc made. And the first person other than him to watch the movie 
was Johnny Carson. He sent it over with a messenger to his home, and he inscribed on the disc, this would have not been possible had it not been for you, and signed it Steven Spielberg. And Johnny Carson, I was on the, when the book came out, it was published first by uh, Dunlop, and when it first came out on the back jacket was a picture with him and me on The Tonight Show, and they said that I was one of the few people he ever allowed his photo to be used on a book jacket or in a promotion, and he was on the back cover of my uh, hardback book of Catch Me If You Can. That clip was from the Carson podcast, and it's the most candid conversation I've heard Abignale be part of. You'll hear more from that interview later, and there'll be a link to the full interview in the show notes. Along the way, cracks began to form in Abignale's tall tales. Journalist Alan Logan began tracking down the tales about Abignale's stories. He details the lies in a book entitled The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching the Truth While We Can. It outlines the huge contradictions in Abigail's stories. There'll be a link to the book in the show notes. Then came a podcaster named Javier Leva, who retraced Abigail's steps and captured more information about his lies. The podcast is called Pretend, and it's an extremely well-done project. Of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. Lastly, there's me. I play a very small role in this tale, I had the opportunity to visit Xavier University in early September of 2022 and confront Abignale. He was at the school, now get this, to be named a hero of professional ethics. I'm a summer guy. I'll be on the porch, enjoying a cool drink and reading. Doesn't get any better, unless someone else does the cooking. I'm not going to spend the day in fresh air only to eat processed foods. If I'm not eating fresh, I'm wasting one of the best seasons of the year. Fortunately, Factor comes to my rescue. They send fresh meals to me that can be cooked up in minutes. I can go back to the porch with a great meal and enjoy the sunset. I'm not into program diets. I like the chef's choice meals. But if I wanted keto, protein, vegan, or anything else, they can provide it. Premium meals could include steak, shrimp, broccolini, or asparagus. The meals come prepped and are customizable. You can get add-ons for breakfast, lunch, or snacks. And when I head out on vacation, Factor will pause my service until I get back. Plus, I love to grill, so I can choose one of Factor's meals during the week and fire up the charcoal on weekends. Be good to yourself. Enjoy the warm weather, great foods from Factor, along with some money-saving discounts I'm about to tell you about. Head to factormeals.com slash scamsandcons50 and use code scamsandcons50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code scamsandcons50 at factormeals.com slash scamsandcons50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I must tell you that Abignale's complete story is as bizarre and twisted as anything you can imagine. It involves stolen cars, jail escapes, and stealing from a family who took him in. And there's much, much more. But today I'm focusing on just one tale. The movie, Catch Me If You Can. So here's the timeline. 
1976, Abagnale formed his current company, Abagnale & Associates, to teach companies how to protect themselves against con artists. Abagnale appeared on To Tell the Truth in 1977, The Tonight Show appearance was in 1978, and his book was published in 1980. Abagnale's book agent sold a two-year option for the movie rights in 1980. The first buyers were Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin, who paid $20,000 per year. Over the next several years, the options passed through various hands, with Abagnale collecting $20,000 a year on each of them. The last link in the chain was Hal Bartlett, who optioned the film for two years leading to his purchase of the full rights for $250,000. This is where Abagnale stopped making money from the film rights, but it's far from the end with his involvement with the movie. Bartlett soon died, and the rights were sold for $300,000 to a Canadian producer who optioned the rights to Disney. The Canadian producer got the rights back after two years, and they were optioned to Sony TriStar for another two years. Producer Barry Kemp optioned it for two years. Then he and his associate, Devorah Moose Hankin, took the project to Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, Spielberg's producers at SKG DreamWorks. The year is now 1998. Pardon the pun, but this is where Steven Spielberg enters the picture. Spielberg decided to direct the film, and it was released in 2002. Abagnale has claimed that he never made any money from Spielberg's film, and by all accounts, that's true. But he did profit from the movie rights. Abagnale says it was around $400,000 pre-Spielberg. They didn't, you didn't have any say in the film, did you? No, none. And I had make no money. If the movie makes a billion dollars, I won't see 10 cents. That was from the BBC program Hard Talk. In his own words, Abagnale contradicts that. This is Abagnale discussing his relationship to the film and a special feature included with the DVD. The studio called and asked if I would mind speaking to Leo on the telephone for a few minutes. And I said, of course not. And so they said, he'll call you at home this evening. And he was so interested in the character. He said, you know, I've read the book, I've read the script, what I want to know is you. You know, what did you feel when you did this? How did you feel about this? I was very impressed with that, so when I hung up from the phone, I was very excited that he was going to play the part. But then, about a few months later, he called again and said, would you mind spending some time with me? I said, sure, I'll be happy to do that. So I went out and literally spent about three days with, with Leo at his home. Earlier, we mentioned the Carson podcast. In 2016, host Mark Malkoff had a very candid conversation with Abagnale, where he describes his involvement with the movie. As this recording begins, the location is a Los Angeles FBI field office where Abagnale is preparing to speak. Butter up the popcorn, folks. You'll enjoy this one. But it's an amazing story how I ended up getting involved in the movie. What had happened is, I, as again, I've heard from nobody. I'm reading The Hollywood Reporter. I see they're getting ready to shoot this movie in about two or three weeks. No one, friends, business associates, anyone cannot believe that no one's called me, no one's reached out to me. And I said, you know, maybe they just don't want to talk to me. I don't know. So uh, about three weeks out, I go 
out to Los Angeles to speak, what we call an all-agents meeting. It's when I go out to address all the agents in that field office, and it's an all-day thing, and I speak maybe two hours of that all day. And I went out to L.A., and when they have those meetings, they pick a hotel, they use a phony name, and then they have the meeting there. So it was at the Marriott out at the airport on Century Boulevard. So I said to my wife, I'm just going to fly out in the morning because I don't speak till 1 o'clock. And then I'm going to come back on the evening flight that night. So I'm not even taking a bag. I'm just going to go out and see if the hotel's right out the LAX airport. I'm just going to go and take the shuttle, and I'll be back. So I go out there, and it's about 200 agents that attend the meeting. And when I get downstairs and I walk in, the special agent in charge of Los Angeles says to me, you will not believe who's here. And I immediately think it's the director of the FBI, who this is the former director, Mueller, who at the time had just been appointed director. So I said, oh, Director Mueller? Nope. Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) I said, what? They said, um, they're in a room in the back. They said, uh, one of the agent's wife's works at DreamWorks, and she told him uh, that you were coming uh, to, he told her that you were coming to L.A., to give a briefing. And we got a call from Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio, and they asked if they could sit in on your briefing, and because it wasn't classified, I told them it would be okay. Do you mind? I said, no. I said, now, nobody else knows the here but me and the ASAC, the assistant agent in charge. All these people don't know the here. They're in a room off on the side. And what I told them is that when you start speaking, uh, because you're using PowerPoint, the slides, the lights will go up. Back then it was slides. You'll be using slides. Uh, the lights will go down. They can come out. So I got a seat for them up on the front row. So I noticed the lights go down. They walked out. They were both in jeans, baseball cap, very casual. They sat on the front row. This was a two-hour briefing. So I started the slide things, and I'm going through the briefing, and I keep thinking they're going to get up and leave. They sit through the entire two hours. As I'm starting to wrap up, they get up and they walk out. All the agents get up and they leave. So I'm getting my slides back off the projector and the agent in charge comes up and says, they want to know if they can meet you. I said, <laughs> they're still here? They said, yeah, they're in this room back here, but they want to meet you. I said, well, sure. So I went back there and Tom Hanks and Leo said, look, we've been dying to meet you, but Spielberg would kill us. Kill us, literally, if he knew we were here. He had did not want us to talk to you. He did not want us to correspond with you until this movie was made. Uh, his whole thing is that he believes he's making a movie about you when you were 16 years old and a teenage boy, not who you are today. And he did not want us to meet you or talk with you to uh, get involved with who you are today or your charisma today or your character today because you're not making a movie about you today. And he all said, you know, he said that we would all get to meet you when the movie was made and that he was wanting to meet you as well, but he was going to wait till the movie was made and we're all forbidden from doing that. And then Leo said to me, but I convinced Tom to come with me today because he said, I kept saying to uh, Spielberg, you're asking me to make a movie about a real person that's living. You've never even made a movie about a real person living. Spielberg said, I know that. It would be new for me. He said, well, it's really new for me, but you're asking me to play the part of this person, and yet you won't allow me to talk to them. You won't allow me to meet them. 
And he said, no, absolutely not. So he said, so we heard about you coming, and we wanted to come out and meet you. And I said, well, I'm glad I got to meet you, because I want to ask you, is this a good movie or a bad movie? Because, you know, I didn't see... I didn't see any script. In other words, is, am, am, I, am I portrayed in a positive light or a negative light? And they said, oh, no, no, no. You're, you know, you come across in a very positive light. As a matter of fact, he, the three FBI agents that arrested you, he said, I understand you know them all. I said, yes, they're all retired. And he's bringing them on the set as his consultants. So he's really getting a lot of his information from his own research as well as those three retired agents, the Tom Hanks character and the two younger guys. But he said, Tom Hanks said to me, don't worry, the movie is not a negative movie. Uh, I think you'll be happy with the film. So I said, okay, sounds great. This is, just, this is an amazing story. So what I noticed is that when Tom left, he had about four bodyguards, and they walked out. But being observant like I am, I noticed that Leo gets up and walks out, and nobody's with him just Leo. He puts on a stocking cap, his sunglasses, and had a little, like a little light jacket, and he walked out. So I walked back up to the front of the lobby. I'm waiting to get the shuttle back to the airport, and all of a sudden, here comes Leo walking back in. And he says, um, Frank, can I call you Frank? I said, absolutely. Can I have just a few minutes of your time here in the lobby? I said, sure. Let me ask you this. If I was willing to pay you would you come and live with me for a week at my home out here in L.A.? I said, well, well, first of all, you don't need to pay me. But second, I said, I don't, I'd have to see if I can fit that into my schedule to do that. Well, this is why. They're asking me to be you. I know nothing about you. I don't know your mannerisms. I don't know how you look, how you motion your hands, how you talk. Um, if you could come just live with me and be a house guest with me, uh, I could learn so much, and I'm, you know, I want to play this part. This is a real person, real person living. I want to do this part well, but nobody can know about this. I said, well, can my, I can tell my wife, right? Certainly, as long as your wife doesn't tell anybody else. I said, yeah, you know, I will do that. And I said, but please, I don't want any money. Uh, it would be a, a, you know, be quite an experience to do it. So. Uh, I went out, uh, I went back. First of all, when I call her my wife and telling her all this, she's going crazy about this whole day I had. <laughs> and then, uh, then I go out to Leo. I pull up. He, he, he lived in Madonna's old house, this multi-million dollar mansion up in Bel Air. I pull up in the car and there's this big gate and it's about an eight foot gate, but it has canvas over it. So you can't see through the iron gates. So when the driver pulls up, he drops me at the driveway gate and says, you're going to have to go up and ring that buzzer, and they're going to let you in. He said, I'm not allowed to drive in there. So I said, oh, okay. So I get my suitcase out because I'm coming for a week. I roll up to this button on the thing. I press it, and Leo answers. Frank, is that you? Yes. I'm going to open the gate. Come on up. He opens the gate, and I look. It's like a mile walk. I'm going, oh, my God, I got this suitcase. I walk all the way up to the thing. He meets me at the door. I come in, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this. This is just really great of you to come. And I said, well, thanks for inviting me. And after I'm there a few minutes, I said to him, who else is here? Who else? Who else do you want to be here? I said, well, I mean, I, I just assume that you have, you know, I don't know, somebody that works in you. No, no, no. I live alone. Nobody, there's nobody here. In this big house? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, no, but I don't have any servants or butlers or anybody like that. I have a cleaning service that comes once a week, but nobody lives here but me. So I said, oh, wow. So I put my bag down, and a little bit into it, I'm starting to look around, but I'm only like in the living area, and I noticed there are no pictures. I, when I was in Hall Bartlett's home, he had nothing but movie pictures everywhere of every movie he made. Here's me with this star and that star. I see no pictures. The only picture I see over the mantle is a poster, original, the original poster from King Kong. God knows how much it's worth. Mm. And a picture on the mantle of his parents, Leo and his parents. So then I think to myself, well, somewhere in this house, he must have like a big library and he has all these photos and stuff like that. So later in the evening, he says to me, you want to take a tour of the house? I said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So he takes me all over the house. I go in every room, and he finally says, I'm going to take you back to my bedroom because I just bought this new Sony computer. And he said, I want to show it to you. So I went back in his bedroom, no pictures. So when we came back in the living room, I said, can I ask you a question? Look, while you're here for a week, you can ask me anything you want, and I'll ask you if you don't mind anything I want. But don't hesitate to ask me if you have a question. Well, I just want to ask you, I see no photos. You know, I've been in other producers' homes and stuff, and I've seen all these. You know, I thought I'd see a picture of you, here's you on the Titanic. or No, 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 I don't, I don't really do that. Now, I have pictures. I have photo albums in my library. But I don't display photos of me uh, in movies and things like that. So I said, okay. I found Leo to be the most down-to-earth, had zero ego, zero ego. He was the most nice, nicest for me, young man, because at the time he was around 27 years old. Nicest young man you ever want to meet. So on the funny part of this story is on the second, well, first of all, when I come down to breakfast that morning, I come down and Leo's down there in his pajamas and he's in this kitchen. And this kitchen is huge. I mean, it has walk-in refrigerators. You think you need like eight chefs in there. And he goes, so what do you want for breakfast? I said, well, who's going to fix it? I am. Who did you? He kept saying to me, who, why do you keep asking? <laughs> I'm going to fix it. I said, okay, there's no cooks. I said, all right. They so made breakfast. Whichever story is true, I'd say that's a pretty direct involvement with the film. It's also worth mentioning that Abagnale has a cameo in the film. He arrests DiCaprio in France while he was running a Czech printing press. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So while Abingdale may not have made any money directly from the film, it did help build the foundation upon which his company rests. And yet, I mean, one clear message seems to be that crime does pay. Well, I don't know. If you really wanted to look at it, I make 10 times the amount of money today than I made as a criminal. So I've shown that you can take something very negative, you can do something very positive with it, and become much more of a success today as an ex-entrepreneur doing something legally than I did doing something illegally. These days, Abagnale distances himself from the past, calling them youthful mistakes. He frequently retells portions of his airline pilot caper to keep the legend alive. 
When asked about his past, his go-to statement is that he wants to be remembered for the good he has done over the past 40 years and not for his so-called mistakes. Wouldn't we all? The presentation I sat in on in Cincinnati was about cybercrime, and regular listeners to Scams and Cons already know the information he presented. But it was well done, and he gave good advice. That's pretty much what he does these days, is to give lectures, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a valuable service. Abagnale gave such a talk in 2017 at Google, and he recounted his escapades, saying they were all opportunistic. He also told the audience, Everything was done by opportunity or by chance. So if, in fact, I was standing out in front of a bank in Manhattan with a $500 check, there was never a plan. I didn't say to myself, I'm going in, cash this check. If they say this, I'll do this. If they do this, I'll do that. I just went in and did it. And I felt that there was nothing I couldn't do. I had tremendous confidence in myself. But everything was for a reason. So which is it, Frank? Were you opportunistic? Or did you do things for a reason? He says seeing the pilots on the street led to buying a uniform and writing bad checks. That was an opportunity. That was planning. I may walk past an ice cream store and have the opportunity to buy a scoop. I could also choose to rob the place. So why does this all matter? I don't consider this activism, journalism, or anything like that. We're really just trying to clear the air, just correct history. You know, there's for decades, there's been misinformation about this guy going around. And when you ask people, hey, do you know anything about Abagnale or the movie Catch Me If You Can? They say, yeah, wasn't that based on a true story? But what we're trying to achieve now is to say, yeah, that's the guy who made it all up. That's all we're trying to do here is to teach people that, hey, this this was mostly made made up and based on a lie. If you sit down and you just think about what Frank Abagnale is saying, if you just think about it for like a minute, not not even that long, you realize that a 16-year-old boy cannot possibly pass as a pilot or doctor. Like, who's going to let this guy in? I mean, he just it just doesn't make sense if you think about it. But most people don't think about it. That was Javier Leva, host of the Pretend podcast I mentioned earlier and who chronicled all of Abagnale's exploits. And he gives credit to Alan Logan, who wrote the book that extensively follows Abagnale's timeline. Alan Logan kind of stumbled on the holy grail of public documents. And it was the public records from the Southern District of New York, which indicate that Frank Abagnale was actually in prison from the time he was supposedly doing all these crazy stunts. and. It proves without a doubt, I mean, I have his prison card, that he was in jail the whole time. So how could he have been a doctor, a lawyer, professor, and a pilot? You know, I mean, it's impossible. Even Abigail concedes to the BBC show Hard Talk that it was a game. Was it, was it enjoyable? Was it a game? Was it a game? Yeah, it, 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 it couldn't help but become a game because I was just a kid playing this game. You know, I was a, an adolescent. I wasn't an adult analyzing my actions. And... Uh, so, you know, when I was wrong. doing it, it was obviously wrong. But as a kid, it was just to me, it was survival. It was moving to the net, you know, to stay one step ahead of the law that was chasing me, that was going to put me behind bars. Which brings me to my small role in this story. It was September 2022, 
and I visited Xavier University in Cincinnati for the Pretend Podcast, where Abigail was given a Hero of Professional Ethics Award. I apologize for the poor audio quality. I'll open up for questions. You may ask me any question you like. There are no restrictions on the questions you want to ask. If it's either something I covered, didn't cover, or it's something personal. Soon, it was time for me to ask my question. Welcome to Cincinnati. Thank you. I don't believe the answer to this question. You, you dodged it pretty well, but <laughs> your fame and your fortune has been pretty much built on stories that you've told that are all lies. And there are public records that document that during the times you outline, you're actually in jail. So you couldn't have done those things. So I wonder, in light of what the ethical award you're going to be presented tonight, would you come clean? Would you tell the truth about the stories you've told and the lies? And you may have performed, but will you come truth and admit that you just lied to everybody and you're still conning them? I don't believe that's the case. I don't give talks about my life. I basically give seminars. Uh, That's what I do, just like I'm doing this evening. And uh, obviously, again... Uh, What I did 50 years ago is irrelevant. I didn't make the movie. I didn't make the book. I didn't make the Broadway musical. If people made money off of telling that story, that was their uh, prerogative to do that. Um, I basically have lived my life the way that I felt I needed to live my life, but I'm well aware that uh, there's going to be people who think like you think and people who uh, look at me in a negative way. That's just part of life, and I've dealt with it for 46 years, and I'll deal with it for a couple more years until I decide to retire from uh, doing this. That's all I'm going to really say about that. There was applause at how Abigail steered me away. It was probably also against me for asking the question. I believe what the applause really says is that people are so invested in his story, they won't surrender their belief that it's all true, and Abigail's actions were just a bit of mischief. It wasn't mischief. Real people and real businesses lost money. He claims to have paid it back, but the families and small businesses who lost that money say they've never gotten a dime. So has Frank Abagnale reformed? He has a successful business, and people value what he has to say. That should be enough, but he keeps repeating the stories that were amplified by the movie. It's important to get the facts on record because it appears that Abagnale himself will keep distorting them. Perhaps there's one piece of advice he shared with the Cincinnati audience that we should heed as well. So crime has changed, and I've changed with it. The one thing you learn is this. The criminal mind never changes. The technique, how they do it, changes. But the mind used to do it never changes. So if you understand how the mind works, you understand how they're committing it. A successful con seduces a sucker into a world where their dreams can come true. Power and great riches are within their grasp. This magic casts a spell that leads its audience to hand over all their money to scammers who vanish before the sucker realizes it was all an illusion. If you enjoy the podcast, Please help us out by telling your friends and encouraging them to listen. Scams and Cons is available wherever podcasts are found and at scamsandcons.com. 
You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Scams and Cons. Lastly, if you can head over to Spotify and leave us a five-star rating, it'd be really appreciated. Spotify listeners are more than half our audience, so it makes a difference. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back after the break. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave four-year vacation in the plane (coughs) and come home under the plane, (coughs) you've definitely gone on a Slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.